Welcome to this edition of the IFS Zooms In. I'm Paul Johnson, and today we're going to be looking at what might be happening to the UK economy, not just right now, but over the next several years. Is it going to bounce back as we might have hoped a couple of months ago, or are we going to be suffering a long-term downturn? And what consequences might that have for the public finances and for what might happen to taxes and spending going forward? To do that, I'm joined today by Ben Nabarro, UK economist at Citigroup, and by Carl Emerson, Deputy Director at the IFS. Let's start by uh, asking Ben, if I may, um, what your projections are for what's likely to happen to the economy. First of all, in in the short run, how, how deep a recession are we in at the moment? What can we expect over the rest of this year? Absolutely. Uh- the first order impact of um, of COVID now appears to have been a, sh- a shade less severe, at least based on the first round of hard data that we have had, than that w- that was initially expected by both the Bank of England and by the um, Office for Budget Responsibility earlier this year. So broadly speaking, the GD- monthly GDP data that the ONS produces implies activity at between 20 to 25% below normal levels in the last week of March, falling to around 25% below normal levels in April. And subsequent to that, um, you know, we think that April constitutes a trough and the more timely indicators that we receive imply some pickup in housing market activity um, a slight recovery in some components of retail spending through May. And our expectation is that those slight positive effects in May are counterbalanced by um, what we describe as second order impacts of the outbreak, this being um, uh, areas of the economy that weren't directly affected by the restrictions, but are affected in via both supply and demand um, by sort of shutdowns in retail, for example. So accountancy firms clearly see their demand suffer when retail firms shut down, for example. So that implies a weak profile through May and overall, we think around a 20% quarter on quarter reduction in the second quarter of this year. More interesting, I think, um, and where the outlook we set out in the briefing note from last week uh, with, um, with Carl and with Isabel, is that while the Bank of England and the OBR assume a relatively quick recovery in the second half of this year, we're somewhat more pessimistic. The key driver behind a stronger outlook um, really depends on the outlook for household consumption. Um, The coronavirus job retention scheme and the self-employment income support schemes are both primarily uh, supporting household balance sheets, um, first and foremost. And with the sharp kind of restrictions on consumer spending, the question is uh, to what degree households take those higher savings rates, the improvements in their balance sheets, and put that to work later in the year through stronger consumption. And the risk, um, as we see it uh, to that, is that um, if unemployment picks up significantly, as initial data have already started to suggest, but importantly doesn't fall back as the economy begins to reopen, uh, then that, alongside continued lingering concerns of the virus, could um, kind of truncate any recovery in household consumption. Um, and that clearly implies a weaker outlook in the in the near term. So uh, that I mean that suggests whilst you uh, whilst you say that your forecasts are not quite as bad as the OBR and the Bank of England, we're still looking at the worst month and the worst quarter and probably the worst year for the economy in in all of history, essentially. 
yeah, at least as far as measured history uh, can can go. Um, yeah, we, we we don't quite know what the Black Death was like in terms of its impact <laughs> on GDP, but. No, um, Andrew Bailey might guess, however, um, but I would say, or he would probably know much better than I would, I'm sure. Um, however, yeah, it's, I think the point with our profile is the first order impact in the recent data suggests, even though it's the worst on record, it isn't quite as bad as maybe we initially feared. But the recovery is the more sort of important and interesting thing. And there we're more pessimistic than maybe initial um, scenarios painted by the, um, uh, the Bank of England and the OBR suggested. Yeah, and that's important because uh, what happens over a, a month or two or even four or five months doesn't matter so much in the long run if the economy bounces straight back to where it otherwise would have been, which is the sort of thing that was implied by the Office of Budget Responsibility and the Bank of England in their baseline scenarios. But I think you're saying that uh, we're not going to bounce back that quickly to where we otherwise would have been. And of course, that has long-term consequences for the size of the economy, how well off we are, and indeed how much money the government has to spend. Absolutely. Um, the way I think of our central scenario and expectation compared to um, to what came from the bank and the OBR is, as I say, they're assuming a quick recovery to pre-COVID normality. We're assuming a longer slog to an economy that will ultimately look very different to the one that went into this crisis and was there at the end of, of 20, 2019. And can you say anything about how it will look different? I think we can say, um, I think there are a few things that can be said there. The um, initial data that we have um, from other economies that have started to emerge from lockdown is there is quite a strong direct link between people's continued fear of the virus and the associated number of new cases, for example, and people's willingness to return to, say, kind of restaurants, more conventional forms of um, uh, consumer services. Um, and there the UK looks comparatively um, relatively poor, at least um, compared to other European countries, where we have, you know, despite seeing a dramatic reduction in the new case, in the numbers of new cases, we still see um, a greater number than those in, say, Germany or France when they began to ease, um, ease their lockdown restrictions. And we also see a high level of public concern um, with the virus that um, that persists. And we also see a relatively low level of government trust. And the combination of those things implies a shift in household preferences in the short term, um, somewhat away from more traditional forms of consumer service um, use and, um, and consumption. Um, in the longer term, um, clearly it becomes it then becomes a question of how persistent you believe those effects may may prove. Um, I think what is notable is that um, while um, you could argue that these effects are only going to last sort of as long as the virus continues and so on, um, the uh, so before a vaccine, uh, the reconstitution in production that. Uh, kind of follows that change in demand. So people have to lose their jobs in restaurants, they have to go and work in new sectors, businesses change the way they do things to make their employees happy and so on. Those effects historically have tended to prove relatively um, persistent once the structural reconfiguration takes place. Um, so I think a move away from, say, growth in the UK that has been driven uh, to, to a significant degree by uh, consumer services in particular probably isn't the model we might expect in the UK um, over the, uh, over, in the aftermath of the, of the virus, for example. 
So that's going to be very uh, that's going to be very important. A different model of uh, recovery uh, because of a reduction in demand for uh, some of the things that we've been used to demanding more and more of restaurant meals or uh, or, or what have you, um, and therefore probably quite a long time before we get back to full employment and uh, a new normal. And that's one of the extraordinary things about some of these economic shocks. It, You'd think this would just be a short-term thing, uh, but because it shakes people out of jobs, uh, does it take a long people to, time for people to find new jobs and new businesses to come together? It can take a long time for the economy to return to uh, an acceptable uh, equilibrium, if we want to put it like that. But one of the things, uh, Ben, that we've rather stopped talking about because we've been so um, overwhelmed by the, the, the current uh, crisis is, of course, Brexit. That's still um, uh, going to happen. Well, it still happened in some sense, but the new trade deal or not, uh, we're supposed to have in place by the end of the year. Um, how does the um, how does Brexit impact on on the outlook after the end of this year? We think this will um, still weigh or rather interrupt the recovery from COVID. Um, there are some um, official bodies and. Uh, I think the OBR is um, one of these that thinks that the relatively slow growth in the UK observed since um, 2016 reflects um, the UK economy beginning to adjust to a new post-Brexit model or reality. Uh, And our view is that actually the combination of um, weak sterling combined with the lack of any actual changes in the UK's external um, trading relationships up until this point. And that was particularly true clearly before uh, January of this year, when we formally left the European Union, has actually seen the UK move in some respects in the wrong direction. And the implication of that is there's still a substantial amount of adjustment to do this more structural, profound form of economic adjustment, just like the type we were just discussing with respect to COVID. And we think the implication of that is that that clearly slows the recovery. Uh, The Brexit impact tends to fall in areas of the economy that uh, may initially be somewhat less exposed to COVID, and particularly these more persistent consumer confidence effects. But we think that those of those areas are still negatively impacted by the virus. And clearly, there's this risk that given most private firms in some form or another have taken additional impairments as a result of COVID, despite the very extensive forms of government support, there could be a risk that that um, hit the uh, what we know about firms having to take on additional working capital in order to manage uh, potential disruptions and adjustments associated with Brexit could result in more firm bankruptcies than they may have done even before uh, before the outbreak. Um, so the outlook for Brexit, and this is clearly, as you say, Paul, being relegated somewhat to the back of the news, uh, remains one where we've decided um, it seems now quite clearly that we're not going to go for an extension. That makes a relatively rudimentary deal very much the um, the best uh, outcome we can hope for, potentially with some delay. Um, and no deal still remains a risk at least as as far as um as far as we're concerned or as far as we can see um that combination still constitutes an important economic risk that's a really so uh, just breaking that down a little i think your your first point is really important the uk economy has grown really very poorly since 2016 and if that were 
because it was already adjusting to a post-Brexit world, we might expect things to be not too bad after Brexit because we've already had some of the pain. Uh, but I think your argument is actually uh, we haven't adjusted. We've just been suffering because of the increased uncertainty uh, associated with Brexit, for example. We haven't made that adjustment. That adjustment is still to come, so we're going to hurt later on. But perhaps you could just um, break down a bit more that difference between, well, what do you mean by a rudimentary trade deal as opposed to no deal at all? And what sorts of impacts might those have on, on British industry? So the um, a rudimentary deal is one that includes um, relatively, well, essentially no provisions for um, for services um, beyond um, a potential for uh, the standard form of equivalence um, the European Union does for financial services, for example, and essentially is based on a no tariff, um, no uh, quota uh, deal for goods. Um, so this, as I say, is um, relatively rudimentary in the sense that it doesn't include any closer forms of institutional cooperation, any UK membership of EU bodies, such as the single market, customs union or otherwise, all of which we have gradually ruled out through this process and instead focuses only on essentially taking you know, what Boris Johnson and several other members of this administration have have referred to, which is existing relatively distant trade relationships off the shelf, such as those between the European Union and Canada, and um, seeking to see them applied here. The difficulty is with the UK is that this leaves a, a very large number of non-tariff trade barriers in place um, for services, these forms of sort of what are described as behind the border restrictions um, can limit business access to quite a significant degree. But particularly for the UK's manufacturing sector, act, actually, despite being the sort of subject of the deal or the only thing that's covered, uh, the UK has developed um, a relatively small but very effective, efficient for manufacturing sector that's based on very close um, value chain integration with the European Union that often sees products manufactured crossing the border multiple times. And while uh, being tariff-free clearly helps, um, actually the vast majority of costs come from um, paperwork, admin, regulatory standards and so on. So to see a deal agreed that doesn't cover any of those areas will clearly make many of those areas of the UK manufacturing sector, you know, uh, suffer. Um, and for services too, the UK, it, these clearly are not going to be covered by this kind of deal. And there, um, business services, um, the very large number of um Kind of business to business services the UK exports into the European Union also are under threat. Though there, their future will be somewhat more um, uh, dependent on how much um, forbearance and kind of the approach the European Union take towards those um, UK exports. Uh, and that's particularly true in finance, where as yet it's not clear to what degree the European Union will um, force the relocation of financial activity from the UK to the EU, or rather will stop uh, financial firms being able to export from the UK into the EU. But it seems plausible over the coming years that more and more of that activity will have to move into, um, into uh, the European Union and out of the UK. So not a very cheerful uh, prognosis on the impacts of Brexit in terms of increased 
costs increase paperwork, uh, sucking uh, financial and other firms from the UK into the rest of the EU. And so that's clearly going to have a long-term negative effect on the British economy and people's incomes. Um, I'll come back to you later, Ben, to talk about how policy might respond to some of this, particularly on the fiscal side. But before talking about how some of that might respond, I want to go to Carl to ask him about the public finances um, and how they might uh, respond to the current uh, situation. So, Carl, if we go back, let's start before the crisis. If we go back to um, February before uh, before the crisis hit, uh, what was the state of the UK's public finances and what sort of plans did the government have at the time? So that's a very long while ago, actually, in um, budget history now. So much has changed since then. The government at the time was running a deficit of about 2% of national income. So that's the gap between what it was collecting in revenues and what it was spending. It was about 2% of what the economy produces. That's well down on the peak of 10% of national income that we saw at the height of the financial crisis in 2009 um, and was a little bit below what we'd been borrowing in the run into the financial crisis. So over that decade, the government had got the deficit down for a combination of squeezes on public spending in many areas, plus some tax rises. Of course, we borrowed lots of money over that 10-year period. So the stock of outstanding debt was running at around 80% of GDP, up from the kind of roughly 40% of GDP that we saw pre-crisis. So We went into the COVID crisis with a lot more debt than we'd had 10 years previously. The deficit backed down to fairly low levels, but quite a way off um, being eliminated, which is what Mr. Osborne had spoke about when he was chancellor. And actually, pre this crisis, the government had kind of moved away from deciding it wanted to reduce the deficit. And the plan was actually to allow it to increase slightly over the next few years um, because it was keen on increasing investment spending. And it decided it would be happy to borrow a bit more to pay for that rather than push up taxes or cut spending further. So we were kind of at the end of austerity. The government had become more comfortable with debt at relatively elevated levels. um, And we were about to see some increases in investment spending. But of course, we were coming off a decade where for many public services, they'd seen um, deep cuts in their budgets for years on years on end, um, which we hadn't seen previously. So a decade of austerity, but the deficit um, still planned to be running, actually, at something like 3% of national income, which was batting right up against the uh, the Chancellor's maximum that uh, was in the Conservative manifesto. Um, so public finances, much better than they were, but not super healthy. What's the effect been of COVID so far on the public finances? Well, if you go back to the... Uh, fiscal statement that happened just before or just as COVID was hitting, it suggested the government might be borrowing around 50 to 60 billion pounds in the current financial year. Um, As Ben has just outlined, um, because of the public health response to COVID, output in the economy is much, much lower. People are earning less, they're spending less, companies are making much lower profits. All of that means that the government gets a lot less in tax, plus it's spending a bit more on universal credit. And in addition, the government set out a package of measures to try and support public services, to support households and to support businesses through this difficult time, which are adding hugely um, to government spending and also cutting taxes further. The cost of those measures alone, while uncertain, has put at around £130 
billion pounds in the current financial year. Add that to the 50 to 60 billion that we were going to be borrowing anyway. Add that to the reduction in revenues that we'll see because the economy is going to produce this year being much below what we expected. We could be seeing a deficit of the order of 300 um, billion pounds this year. It's highly uncertain, but around that kind of mark, um, which will be even more as a share of our national income than what we borrowed at the height of the financial crisis, which would make it um, the biggest deficit we've seen since the Second World War, but not larger than the amounts we were borrowing during the Second World War. Well, that's uh, that's reassuring. At least this isn't worse than the Second World War in terms of its impact on the public finances. But But it is worth just being very clear that these numbers by any peacetime standards are absolutely extraordinary. You and I, Carl, remember uh, the period in 2008, 2010, when we were talking about unprecedented levels of borrowing. And actually what's happening at the moment pretty much puts that into the shade. It does. We will. It'll be a big surprise if we don't end up borrowing more this year than we did at the peak of the financial crisis. But I do think that the deficit this time is in some sense much less scary than what we experienced then, in the sense that we know that the economy can produce a lot more next year than it will this year if the COVID um, disease fades away and we're able to relax um, all of the public um, health measures that are put in place, all the, all the social distancing. And we also know that a big part of the increase in um, borrowing this year is because of those measures that the Chancellor set out to support us through this difficult time. The plan is that they will all expire by the end of this year. Now, to some extent, they might end up lingering on, but you'd expect most of them to be phased out over the next few years. So the deficit will, if the economy recovers strongly, um, reduce quite quickly. And if those measures are turned off again, reduce pretty quickly. Um, What we need to worry much more about rather than the amount of borrowing we'll do this year is really, so when we're through this in two, three, four years time, has the economy bounced right back to where it would have been as those Bank of England and OBR scenarios suggested? Or will it be more like the scenario where Ben described where the economy is still impaired, in which case the economy will have grown quickly, but still be below where it would have been. We'll see tax revenues still below where they would have been. And there'll be some enduring deficit and we'll see debt rising yet further. That's the thing we need to worry about rather than this huge spike in borrowing that we're going to see in the current year. Uh, what are the risks around debt rising further? I mean, it may it may now already be uh, above 100% of, of national income. And again, we cast our minds back to a decade ago. People were really worried about debt levels at, at, at that level. How scared should we be? If you look compared to other countries, um, it's not the case that the UK has a particularly low level of debt, but it's also the case there are some countries with more debt. Um, so the United States and Japan being the obvious ones. So there are economies that have sustained much higher levels of debt. And it's important to remember that at the moment, we're borrowing money incredibly cheaply. Um, So the government can borrow on a 10-year basis um, at interest rates that are roughly zero. So actually, if if we think that um, interest rates can remain low for a very long while, it seems very natural for us to have more debt. It's the cost of the debt that matters, the debt interest bill, that doesn't look like it's going to be any higher than what we thought before COVID hit. So despite taking on all this extra borrowing, the drop in interest rates that we've seen since then has been enough to more than outweigh that effect and depress what we what we'll be spending on debt interest. But it's not to say there's no risk here. Um, if in a few years' time we've got elevated debt and interest rates start to rise more quickly, 
And they do so because the economy is performing well. Well, that's okay. We'll be spending a lot more on debt interest, but we'll have a stronger economy. We'll have more tax revenues coming in. The risk would be what happens if if interest rates start to rise, and that's not associated with stronger economic growth. Then we'll be left with an increase in our debt interest bill without the tax revenues to pay for it. And we're exposed to that risk, um, not only because we're borrowing very cheaply, but we're also effectively borrowing at very short run rates. So the Bank of England's programme of quantitative easing means that much of what the government is borrowing at the moment, the extra borrowing we're seeing in the current year, is, is essentially being borrowed at the current uh, Bank of England base rate, and that's at 0.1%. As that starts to rise, the cost of that borrowing that's financed via quantitative easing will rise. So there are plenty of risks here. And the key one is to do with the growth rate of the economy. And with probably uh, higher spending coming as a result of the last uh, the last few months, an economy that's somewhat smaller uh, than we might have expected, borrowing is likely to be significantly higher over the next three or four years than planned. And as we discovered at the beginning of what you were saying, Carl, it was already planned to be uh, barely at a level which was consistent with the debt uh, remaining stable. That that rings all sorts of alarm bells, doesn't it? Because that suggests to me that the course that we're on at the moment is one in which the outstanding debt is ever rising. Um, that presumably is going to require the government at some point to implement another programme of austerity. Is that right? I think the government needs to have a kind of broad strategy in two parts. I think the short run strategy has to be about potentially borrowing more where that borrowing can be done cheaply if it can be used on programmes that will help secure better growth in the future. That's a clear priority now. Are there investments, are there things we can be doing now, even if it involves more borrowing now, that will mean the economy bounces back um, more strongly? Then the second part of the strategy needs to be, well, once we're through this phase, once the deficit's returned a bit more to normal levels, once the economy's returned to a bit more like normal, how do we want to manage the public finances then? We will have an elevated level of debt. We'll have a deficit that's pushed up, certainly above where the government was intending it to be um, back in February, March. And I think there there'll be some political choices to make. Um, We may see, for example, the public and politicians demanding more spending on things like health, on social care, on things like working age benefits. I think it's probably unlikely that we will see a program of deep cuts to other parts of public spending. Um, I think in 2010, perhaps that was more plausible because um, we had seen sharp increases in spending in many areas over the previous decade. That's not the case now. So I think it would be really quite surprising if we were to see deep cuts to spending in many areas of public services. What wouldn't be surprising to me is if we see a mix of some tax rises to help reduce the deficit back towards the path it would have been, plus an acceptance that we'll have to have a higher level of debt for many decades to come. And we'll just have to live with that um, over many, many years. So perhaps I can return to you, Ben, at, at, at this point. From from the point of view of uh, the uh, financial markets, I mean, what, what risks do you see about having this elevated level of debt and potentially debt rising for a significant period of time? In the UK's case, I think the biggest unknown and what potentially makes it rather different to the Japanese example, and the US, I think that for these purposes, we should broadly think of as a special case, is the UK's relatively weak external position. 
uh, and the subsequent dependence on foreign investment to fund both the UK's current account deficit and clearly its, um, its financing demands as well. And in that respect, um, that engenders something of a, of a hard constraint, if you like, especially on the Bank of England. Because as Carl was describing, the key thing and the reason why we can be somewhat sanguine about this um, relatively high, these high levels of borrowing and the relatively ele the elevated debt profile is because borrowing costs are relatively low. And as a result, even if um, first we emerge from this crisis, say, with a lower rate of, um, of potential growth, and that isn't something we actually forecast, we forecast a, a lower level, but not necessarily a lower rate. But even if we did get that, it would be um, a very significant move indeed to see growth rates fall below uh, borrowing costs, uh, given that ongoing support. So given that, I think we can we can think of three risks um, for uh, for the financial markets and their the potential for them to reprice um, uh, the uh, long-term uh, government uh, interest rate. Uh, the first might be um, a, a significant increase in inflation. And in the current context, um, that would imply not just uh, a sort of st an inherent steepening and increase in interest rates because inflation itself has gone up, but also potentially because it might force the Bank of England to um, to change its approach somewhat. And their inflation expectations are a particular concern. The second might be broader unease around the UK's sort of foreign investors, the people who are currently investing in the UK from abroad, um, and broader concerns about creditworthiness or potential growth or investment returns among that group. And the third would be very significant moves or threats to the stability of sterling as a whole, which would clearly also force the Bank of England to think quite differently and could also reprice uh, gilts in quite a significant way. So from a financial perspective, that's broadly how I think about the risk to those very low rates that allow us to be somewhat sanguine for now. Those are slightly terrifying prospects. Um, this may be an incredibly unfair question, but can you put any probabilities around uh, any of that coming to pass? I would be unwilling probably to put probabilities on it. But what I would say is it is something that people think about much more actively than I think they used to. And when you think about the intray of the United Kingdom, you know, we have COVID, there's a risk we emerge from this, not just sort of weaker, but as a potential underperformer. And that, I think, is now a, a clear-cut risk, and that's to do with the structure of the UK economy before COVID and the relatively poor response through it. Uh, so that's point one. We're then going to have Brexit with potential implications for potential growth. And then we potentially get into a realm of politics where clearly the outcome is incredibly uncertain, but it isn't implausible, for example, to see a second Scottish independence referendum in 2022 and one that yields a, a positive independence vote. And those sort of package of political risks definitely make a scenario in which, um, you know, some of these financial vulnerabilities can become real concerns, I think. Um, so it's not implausible, but I wouldn't say it's probable. Yeah, and that's uh, and and that's exactly the uh, the challenge that governments face, and it's a political challenge, isn't it? Because uh, the likelihood is that we'll be able to carry on borrowing uh, at elevated rates for a significant period, but there is a non-zero risk that we won't. And if that happens, then the consequences can be really quite catastrophic, uh, and that's something that governments want to do all they can to avoid. 
And I think the way you put it there, Ben, is a nice way of summing it up. The whole world is suffering from COVID, but it looks like, for various reasons, we're doing worse than many other countries. We've also got the risks around Brexit about to hit us. Uh, and there are other constitutional and political risks, which are a bit different and perhaps bigger in the UK than in some other countries. Put that alongside uh, a decade of austerity that we've already faced and uh, public finances, which were only uh, just about okay as we went into this crisis. And the risks clearly are pretty substantial. And I think there we want to balance some of those risks. It's about the how much are we prepared to live with the risk that debt is higher and some of the costs that Ben were describing will have to bear versus, you know, did we really want to go into the world where we're trying to do more austerity on public services versus do we want to do tax rises once we're through this with a tax burden that's already pretty high by UK historical standards? I think it's my own judgment is that the, the public service cuts are unlikely and therefore it will be some balance of you know pushing up taxes even further and the, the judgment that we'll just have to live with some of the risk on public sector debt for quite some time. Well, this is clearly going to be a, a heck of a challenge for the new Chancellor, Rishi Sunak, over the next few years. He's, um, in a way, had a good crisis so far because he's been fa- the father Christmas of the crisis. He's been able to pour tens and tens of billions of pounds into the economy, but he's now going to have to manage uh, the consequences of that, and that's going to involve as we've seen, either living with uncomfortable levels of borrowing and debt or most likely higher rates of tax at some point. I think on that cheerful note, it's probably time that we finish this particular edition of the IFS Zooms In. That's been a fascinating conversation with Ben Nabarro there from Citigroup and Carl Emerson from the Institute for Fiscal Studies. Thank you uh, very much for tuning in. If you did enjoy this episode, please hit the subscribe button and rate us. And you can always stay on top of our latest work by visiting www.ifs.org.uk. Stay well, and we look forward to speaking to you again soon.